Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden. Today, joining us from Budapest, Hungary, uh, from Central European University, where it's a lot chillier, I presume, than in South Africa. It's actually lovely weather. It's sunny and beautiful. And we were just commenting not only the weather, but the internet connections are better in Hungary. <laughs> so uh, if we sound clearer today, it's because Kobus is actually uh, in the first world for uh, for a change. So we have much clearer internet connections. And for the first time, we're actually going to Frankfurt, Germany, where Falk Hartig, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at uh, Goethe University, is joining us. And uh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Well, the reason why we've invited Falk on to the show is because we want to talk about Chinese cultural diplomacy in Africa. Now, typically when we talk about cultural diplomacy, oftentimes it's put in the framework of media. Uh, we've had a number of conversations, Kobus, about Chinese media on, on the continent, uh, dating back uh, many years when China really did a big expansion of its CCTV initiatives, also China Daily, and that's kind of passed for what they call public diplomacy. But Falk is an expert in the Confucius Institutes in Africa and what they're doing on this educational diplomacy. So before we get into the details about the Confucius Institutes, let me just kind of give a little bit of background. And Falk, please kind of correct me on any of the data, the numbers, or anything if I get wrong here. The program yes. launched in 2004 by uh, an organization called the, the Hanban. Now, the Hanban, for those of you not familiar, is an official Chinese government body that is kind of in charge of the promotion of Chinese language around the world. Today, there are about 475 Confucius Institutes worldwide, uh, 851 Confucius classrooms, and we'll find out what the difference is between an institute and a classroom. And in all, all of this is going on in 126 different countries. Specifically in Africa, there are now 40 Confucius Institutes uh, in 30 different countries. So it's a very big, um, you know, big program that the Chinese have undertaken. Just so I think, Falk, we can get started so people have a reference point for what the Confucius Institutes actually do. Uh, if anybody's been abroad, you've run into the British Council, the Alliance Francaise, the American Center, or the Goethe Institute in uh, in Germany. And is it fair to kind of compare what the Confucius Institutes do to what those other organizations do as well? Yes, I would say content-wise they are presenting very much the same aspects you just mentioned. And they are focusing, for one hand, they are focusing very much on promoting Chinese language and on the other hand, broadly speaking, Chinese culture. And in this regard, I would say they are very similar to their international, mainly Western counterparts. Um, in my understanding, I think we will talk about this later on. The biggest difference in my understanding is the way these institutes are organized and structured, which has implications for the content. But generally speaking, the official mandate is very much the same as it is for other institutes you just mentioned. Falk, um, when we talk about them uh, promoting Chinese culture, what, what does that mean? I mean, we, you know, if I, if I think about the Goethe Institute in, in South Africa, for example, they would do things like, you know, kind of gay and lesbian film festivals and they bring out DJs and, you know, kind of they, they sponsor like, you know, kind of avant-garde art and, and, and stuff like that. Is, do, do they do the same kind of thing? Do they have the same view of culture or is it a different view of culture? I think this is one of the one of the biggest and most interesting questions. What actually does Chinese culture mean? And especially when you compare it with these aspects you just mentioned, what the what the Goethe Institute, uh, for example, is doing, then I would say 
normally speaking, the Chinese culture that is presented in most of the Confucius Institutes would then be something more traditional or critics might also say something more conservative or even something a little bit more cliche and kitschy from a Western point of view. Um, so it's a, it's a different kind of Chinese culture, so to speak, that they are presenting. It's more the traditional paper cutting, Beijing opera, tea ceremony, Chinese food, um, those aspects. So it's maybe not what we in the West at least would describe as contemporary creative arts and uh, culture in this regard. So I think this might also be one one difference. Yeah. Well, you basically defied what uh, the, the, the institutes do into th- kind of three big broad categories. And you say there's language teaching, there's cultural activities, and again, there's this presentation of China to the world that we can talk about in terms of how they yeah. present themselves to the world. Yeah. But they do present, they do kind of say this is the face of what China is and how we want to kind of be seen in the world. So, you know, are those, when we look at those three broad categories, again, that comes back to seeing that's the nature of what governments do when they are abroad trying to promote themselves culturally. Exactly. Absolutely. I would, I, w- I would totally agree with this, that um, cultural language and however you want to describe it as uh, the image of China or narratives about China or presenting China. I mean, this is very much what any of these institutes um, are doing. For me, one very interesting point was or is when I'm talking to a lot of people who are actually engaged in these institutes on ground, it seems to be that there's a tendency that people are trying to stay away from the broader aspects of presenting China as such. A lot of people are saying and arguing, we are only doing culture and we are only doing language. And I think this approach very much relates to this sensitive issues or the aspects of controversy about the Confucius Institutes. And I think this is an interesting, um, maybe it's not a difference to other uh, institutes, but I think it's a very interesting point when you talk to people in charge of Confucius Institutes that they are very much aware that these institutes are somehow under fire, especially in the West, and therefore they for themselves somehow try to stay away from these what might be the more political issues. Okay. And I think this is a very interesting It point. is very interesting. Let's now shift to the controversies. Kobus, uh, the Confucius Institutes, not just in Africa, but particularly in the United States, Japan, and Canada, uh, have been, actually, I think even in Germany too, have been quite controversial. Can you kind of run down a couple of the controversies to set up why this has become such a sensitive issue? Most of the controversies have, have been uh, around whether the whether the universities, the hosting universities, have uh, complete freedom of choice and freedom of of curriculum um, in in the kind of teaching that happens at, at Confucius uh, institutes there. So you have to keep in mind that the Confucius Institute is, if I if I have this correctly, it it is supported by Hanban from the Chinese government, but it's also supported by uh, a, a partner university in China and then the university in the in a foreign country has to has to give space and support to to host this Confucius Institute. Yeah, so exactly. in the um, recently like late last year, this was there was this kind of rolling controversy when the University of Chicago um, said that they weren't going to renew their Confucius Institute contract because of concerns that they that there isn't a complete freedom to set the curriculum and that there is what they called what some people called interference from Beijing. Um, mm-hmm. You know this is this has also been echoed in, in 
certain, um, you know, kind of bioteachers institutions in Canada. Um, and as far as I understand, the McAllister University in Toronto actually also kind of cancelled their contract. Um, so, you know, that, that's that's the extent that I understand the the, the controversy. Um, Falk, what, what did you make of this controversy? Um, that's a um, very, very interesting point because I'm, when I'm talking to people, especially here in Germany, um, who are actually in charge of these institutes, I mean, this is a topic that comes up every time and every time people are trying to defend themselves what they are doing. And uh, as Eric just mentioned before, also in Germany, we I would not say they are very controversial in Germany, but in Germany there are there's a small group of people who are very, very active trying to be very critical of the Confucius Institutes. And in my understanding, um, I would partly even agree with some of the critical points these people are making or the points they are raising. I mean, the question of getting money from an organization out there, you know, the university can be an issue in general. It's not only an issue maybe for Confucius Institutes, but it seems to me any third party funding can be criticized or at least can be critically investigated. Why is someone giving money? Yeah. And I think this is a valid point to make. And this is also a valid point to think about. Um, the big problem for me doing this for eight, seven, eight years now is that the critics are so very emotional when it comes to Confucius Institutes. And it seems at times that they are not even talking about the Confucius Institutes as such, but they just use it as object or subject matter just to talk about China. And yeah. They it, are fighting it, about It's a proxy China. for China and they just kind of put all of their frustrations with China into the exactly. Confucius Institutes. Yes, so let, let's give an example of some of these controversies. Obviously, Taiwan is a very sensitive issue. And so, and this has come up in a couple of instances where Confucius Institutes have responded very clumsily when it comes up. These are Confucius Institute leaders around the world have responded clumsily when, when the issue of Taiwan comes up. Xinjiang has been another issue that's come up. Yes. Uh, China's human rights policies are also, you know, kind of factored into all of this. The reason why I think I think it's garbage, the way that the critics are coming at this. And again, I am not trying to defend the Chinese here. What I'm trying to say is that when you get into bed with a government institution of any kind, whether it's the Americans, the French, the Germans, or the Chinese, you're going to have to deal with these kind of propaganda issues, I think. I mean, certainly the United States is not going to tolerate universities around the world promoting content in partnership using taxpayer dollars from the United States to talk about communism, jihadism, and all the things that Americans hate. And the Americans are going to promote a view of themselves around the world that is radically different than what the reality is, because that's the nature of what public and cultural diplomacy is all about. It's not about yes. being accurate. And so I think when people hold the Chinese to this kind of higher standard, there's an implication that the Alliance Francaise and the Goethe Institute and, say, you know, the British Council are not doing exactly the same thing. I mean, yes. I have to, sorry to interrupt, I have to say, like, I found some of this criticism, you know, to echo you, slightly disingenuous, because, you know, at, at the uh, within this University of Chicago um, controversy, um, the, you know, kind of one of the critics was, you know, kind of was, was writing these letters to the Confucius Institute um, at the University of Chicago saying, like, well, does the Confucius Institute, you know, kind of, does, you know, commemorate the, the Tiananmen incident? See, and I'm like, BS. no, they don't, obviously. I mean, but that's just you know, the same. Way that the American, yeah, exactly I mean, just, that that you know kind of 
you know, the American Council doesn't doesn't kind of celebrate the the fall of Saigon. You know, kind of it just doesn't. You know, it's 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 not that surprising for me. Sorry, Falco, interrupted you. You know, I I I, I would generally generally agree, but I might maybe to nevertheless, I think I have a slightly different um different understanding and maybe. The three of us, I'm maybe even the most critical one of the Confucius Institutes. I'm not too sure. But I would, first of all, I would generally agree and say it's very obvious that any government is trying to present itself in a friendly, harmonious, whatever way. But nevertheless, even though I would totally agree that you cannot do everything at the Goethe Institute or uh, America, um, the American houses, nevertheless, I would say it still matters what kind of government is um, funding these organizations. And in Germany, a few years ago, we had the same um, discussion um, with the Deutsche Welle, for example. And there was a Chinese lady working for Deutsche Welle, and she was making the argument that um, in Germany, and they were talking about uh, blogging websites in China and all this kind of stuff. And um, she was making the argument saying, in Germany, you are not allowed to... um, propagate um, Nazi, Hitler, all this kind of stuff, or child pornography. This is, of course, right and correct, but nevertheless, at least at times, it seems to me that Confucius Institutes, when it comes to these sensitive issues, they are more conservative than maybe the British Council or Germany's Goethe Institute, just as Kobus mentioned in the beginning, the uh, um, presentations on gay or lesbian rights or something like this and therefore basically speaking I totally agree but nevertheless I still think it is somehow a difference whether you're representing the Chinese government or for example the German government yeah I, I mean my view with all due respect is that it's really a subtle difference if any and I think it's presumptuous of Western governments to somehow think that they're above propaganda, which obviously we know they're, they're not. And that, yeah, again, right. when, we ever, when we talk to the Chinese, it feels like, particularly the Chinese in Africa, that there is a, a, a real double standard applied. And again, I say that not in defense of the Chinese. It's more of a criticism of the West than it is to, to support the Chinese. The Chinese are doing yeah. what they think is in their best interest here. Now, I guess my, my bigger question is forget the propaganda, forget the sensitivity. Um, Does it actually work? And the reason I bring this up is because I was at a seminar in Washington a few years ago, and and this was a public diplomacy seminar. And this kind of senior American diplomat uh, from the State Department was talking about, in response to a question about the effectiveness of promoting American culture in Africa. And she said, well, we've got these American centers, these libraries all over Africa. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding me. Like... (laughs) This is the State Department, which, you know, got billions of dollars, and it's trying to sway hearts and minds with libraries? I mean, like, A, who reads books anymore? But B, like, let's say it's tremendously successful, and maybe 15 people a day show up to the library. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I guess I wonder, like, all of this feels so small scale. I mean, like, teaching 40, you know, South Africans Chinese. Yeah. uh, Yeah, so they've got 40 institutes across Africa it just feels so small when the challenge of the Chinese and their cultural diplomacy is so vast that it just feels like this is more about just like a talking point for Li Keqiang or Xi Jinping to say, look at what we're doing around the world, but yes. really effectively yeah. on the ground, yeah. it's not really doing that much. I, I would totally agree, and I would not say that it only feels small or uh, it is 
in my understanding, it really is rather small and the impact is really limited. I mean, one of the big questions and that somehow came up in, in your anecdote is the basic or the principal question, how can you actually really, how can you measure this kind of impact? I mean, this is one of the big discussions in the whole literature, soft power, public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, however you want to call it. The big question is, can you measure it? How can you measure it? And um, But next to this, I think there's also another another aspect when we look at the bigger issue of presenting China. And I think this is one of the, uh, the points that in my understanding, as far as I can see, and that's again, not only a point for the Confucius Institutes, but uh, here it's um, a very critical aspect in my understanding, people who for whatever reason have a negative image of China, in my understanding, would never ever go to a Confucius Institute, go there, whatever, see a movie or taking part in a Chinese class and afterwards would say, oh, now I have a completely different understanding of China. So I think this whole notion of cultural diplomacy could maybe also be described in the context of, I'm not too sure how to say it in English, I'm preaching to the Choir. converted. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think this is also one issue. And then again, the question, as you as you mentioned before, um, why are they investing so much money? And from what I've heard in Beijing and also in some of the institutes, it seems that the Hanban, which is the, the umbrella organization, is also not too sure how to measure the um, the impact. They are only measuring numbers. So it's very much about quantity, but not so much about quality. Um, Falk, we recently saw each other in Cape Town, um, and um, you mentioned that you were, you know, kind of doing a little bit of research about Confucius Institutes in in South African universities. And recently, there was also they launched one in a university in Ethiopia recently at that uh, late last year, and then I think last month one another one in Kenya, the fourth one in Kenya. Um, yes. Like how how are they growing? Like how you know kind of are they growing in Africa? And you know kind. Of are they are African Confucius Institutes similar or, or, or a little bit different from Confucius Institutes in rich countries like like in the US? Um, I'm I'm not too sure about the growth rate um, exactly, but um, as Eric mentioned in his introduction, I think there are some 40 institutes on the whole continent. And when you compare this with the fact that I think there are 100 or even over 100 in the United States and in Germany alone, we have 15 or another five in the making. So the difference is very obvious between 40 on the whole African continent and 100 in the United States. I think this is one of very obvious um, difference. Uh, another, in my understanding, another uh, big difference between Confucius Institutes in Africa and in other parts of the world is um, that as far as I know, there is not a tradition of academic engagement with China on the African continent. So there's not a real history of China studies or Sinology. Um, there are some universities which engage with China before, as far as I know, but generally speaking, most of the Confucius Institutes at African um, universities more or less start from scratch. And I think this is a big difference because in this regard, Confucius Institutes on the African continent may 
be a more prominent player in this uh, higher education field. And I think this is one of the biggest and most interesting uh, differences between the Confucius Institutes here in Germany or Europe and then compared to Africa, for example. Let me close. Because oh, in, go ahead. Uh, sorry, sorry, just to clarify. Because in, in the US and Germany and so on, they're already slotting into already existing East Asian studies programs or, or why, why yes, do you think? Yes, no, norm, normally, normally this is the case that normally um, Confucius Institutes are established at universities which already have a China, Chinese Studies Department, Sinology Department and which already also mainly have connections with Chinese universities. And there are of course, there are, I think especially in the United States, because the number is so huge, there are more and more universities which do not have this link with China before, but uh, traditionally or, or originally it was very much that Confucius Institutes were established in Europe, for example, between universities who already had connections between Chinese and German or English universities. And I think this is one of the big differences where on the African continent, for a lot of African universities, as far as I can see, I'm not an Africa expert, but from what I can see, in this regard, Confucius Institutes are really very much the first contact point these universities have with China and this gives them a much more potentially a much more prominent role. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm lucky tonight to have, you know, a, a, a Sino-African media scholar and obviously a cultural diplomacy scholar here. So I'm going to ask you both the same question. And in closing, I'd like to get your take on this theory that I've been kind of developing in my head. Um, so Xi Jinping has come into power and he is really the most distinctive Chinese leader that we've seen in a generation. Um, and there's been indications that Xi Jinping does not believe in the peaceful rise type of doctrine, which was under the Hu Jintao era. And not to say that he's more militaristic in any way, but there are indications that he is. But he just doesn't believe in the, in the soft power diplomacy as much. If people are going to accept China, they accept China. If they don't, well, forget them. And it seems like she, for Xi, what he really is promoting is economic diplomacy. So we're seeing now this just in the past 12 months, the launch of the One Belt, One Road, which is the Maritime Silk Road. We're, look, mm -hmm. we're talking about the recreation of the physical Silk Road over, you know, through, in, from Central Asia. Uh, the Asian Infrastructure Bank is also going to be a very, very big part. And Cobus did some research, I think, last year or the year before, that spoke about how in Africa in particular, China's economic kind of success story is a form of soft power in its own right. And so that's gotten me thinking that I don't believe personally that Xi Jinping is going to invest another renminbi into CCTV or the Confucius Institutes. I think he won't cut them because bureaucratic politics being what they are in Beijing are just the same as they are in any other country where there are stakeholders, there are lobby groups, there are interest groups, and, you know, launching programs is much easier than cutting them. So he'll keep mm -hmm. CCTV Africa, he'll keep the Confucian Institutes and the Hanban, but he's really not going to put any more money into it. Because for him, this is about the economic diplomacy that will then, you know, open up China's market, spread wealth to the rest of the world, make the rest of the world kind of engage with China, dependent on China, be a partner with China, and that will then kind of really serve China's long-term public diplomacy initiatives far more than it would, say, by promoting classrooms full of people studying Mandarin. So let me start. I apologize for my dog barking back there, obviously in support of Xi Jinping here. Um, is... Uh, <laughs> 
proxy, please. Um, <laughs> Kobus, let me start with you first on the public diplomacy and the media side. Uh, do you agree, disagree? What's your thought on that? I tend to agree. I, um, I, you know, I agree to to a certain extent. Um, I, it seems to me, and this again is kind of tea leaf reading, but but it seems to me that it's not uh, not only in China um, under Xi, but in in a few other places as well. There seems to the kind of the the software backlash has started a little bit, and I think there's a lot more questioning about whether soft power has any real kind of real world valence, um, whether it really works to to um, um, you know, kind of to, to to convince people about the bona fides of a country. Uh, you know, kind of this is this is particularly um, acute in the case of my my other field of study, which is Japan, which you know, kind of because Japanese pop culture is super popular. People love Japanese pop culture, and especially in China, people love Japanese pop culture. But what they realize is that you can love anime and sushi as much as as much as anyone and still hate Japan. You know, kind of that's very clear in in, in kind of in, in Chinese life yes. at the moment. So it's not necessarily that i think i think the expectation that the that there's a one on one to one you know kind of equation between people liking your culture and people liking you has is starting to break down and i think it's it's starting to be to be complicated i don't think that necessarily means that people are going to move away from trying to build cultural influence but i think that you know there seems to be a swing a kind of a vogue, an infrastructure vogue at the moment, you know, definitely driven driven by China, but also even picked up in, you know, kind of in crazy schemes mentioned by Vladimir Putin recently, you know, like big highway schemes that they're planning. Um, and so on. It's, it seems to me that there's at the moment, there's this kind of wave where infrastructure equals a physical manifestation of power and national influence. Um so that you know, kind of, I, it, it seems that the pendulum seems to be swinging in that direction a little bit, slightly away from media. Falk, I don't know if you agree. I, I generally totally agree. I mean, even though it might not be the best situation for us being students and scholars in this field of, of study, <laughs> looking at public diplomacy, soft power, and all this kind of stuff. But I, I would generally agree and say, especially what you said about the relation between. The culture as such and then more the state or even the government i mean making this um a relation i think is very very hard and it, it seems to me to a certain extent i'm not too sure but it seems to me that governments in general have issues or problems to understand something like soft power which is on the one hand rather fluffy but also on the other hand you cannot really control it and i think this is one of the big issues and i think this also goes back to the notion that you are investing something but then you don't get anything out of it at least not something you can really quantify so i think this is another um another point and um so i would generally totally agree and coming back to what eric said before um, relating to Xi Jinping and the question whether he or that he would not give any more renminbi into the Confucius Institutes. I think this would be a really, really interesting development. And in my understanding, they have to find a way to stop establishing these institutes because it's getting more and more and more. We just talked about the, the fourth in, in Kenya and late last year when I was at this annual conference in Chairman where all the institutes come together and talk about what they can do for the next years. Um, there were rumors that, as I said before, in Germany, they would set up another five this year and people 
told me that there are another 200 universities from around the world applying to establish a Confucius Institute. And I really think they have to find a way to stop and really focus much more on quality and not so much more on quantity. This is not only an issue to explain to Chinese people or to Chinese taxpayers why the Chinese government is spending money, for example, uh, giving money to universities in the Western developed world so that people there can learn Chinese while high schools in rural areas in China are really suffering from budget, very tight budgets. But I think it's also a matter of practical issues like teachers, teaching materials and all this kind of stuff. I think they really have to find a way to cut down the institute's number. I mean, 470 institutes, in my understanding, it's just way too much. And maybe... Um, Xi Jinping's approach, focusing much more on um, economic diplomacy, might even go in this direction as well. Yeah, so I mean, last year. It, it, yeah, I mean, it, it would. It seems like it would be a good idea for the Chinese to at least to take a pause and take a, you know, and, and evaluate whether or not this is working or not uh, for them. But it is an absolutely fascinating topic. Uh, Falk Hartig is a postdoctoral research fellow at Goethe University in Frankfurt. If you go on to YouTube, I highly recommend watching a video. It's about 15 minutes of a talk that he gave at the USC US China Institute back in 2014. And now some of the data that that he kind of presents in that is a little bit dated now, but nonetheless, it, it, you kind of map out really the whole situation, you know, in very very clear and easy to understand terms, which I thought was very useful. And so, uh, so I recommend you check that out. At the end of every show, Falk, what we like to do is kind of lead our listeners into where people can follow what you're doing. Are you? Do you have a presence on social media by any chance? Mm, I have to admit, no. You are part of that <laughs> academics. You know, Cobus, we talk about these guys all the time, these academics who don't get the whole social media thing. So, uh, <laughs> so. I'm very sorry, but <laughs> unfortunately, not really, no. That's My, okay. Uh, we will make up university, for it. <laughs> the so, university and the research project, they are all on Facebook, Twitter and all this kind of stuff. But especially, you know, when you deal with China and you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, at times it's a little bit complicated that I your followers I can really follow you. Kobus, you don't have the same problem. What's the best way for people to follow what you're doing? <laughs> You'll see me on our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Kobus and I are updating that Facebook page almost 24 hours a day, if you can believe it. Almost three or four hours a day, there's a new story going up. So it's a fantastic way to stay on top of the latest China-Africa news throughout the day. Uh, easy to follow. Just kind of follow us on Facebook. Another great way is we've launched this newsletter. Uh, and every Monday, Kobus and I send it out. We kind of pick through all the stories of the week and give you the best uh, four or five of the top headlines, plus an academic paper, uh, and, uh, you know, really just the best in our weekly podcast goes out on that as well. So if you want to sign up for our newsletter, uh, go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com and you'll see signups all over the page there. And of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter, E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.